If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to join me in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. So uh, Isaiah, one of the great prophetic books of Scripture. Um, And so Isaiah chapter 9, and if you want to go on and mark, that's the chapter that we'll be in for the next uh, six weeks or so. When I was in uh, college, my junior and senior year, I worked at Cracker Barrel. There was a season of my life where I chose my occupation based on where I like to eat. And so I had signed up, uh, been working at Cracker Barrel for a while, and uh, Tuesdays was truck day. So my primary responsibility was to help unload the truck uh, of of all the stuff, the food, of course, but also things that would go in the gift shops. And, And this was a Tuesday in the middle of August, and it was hot like the middle of August, can only be hot in North Carolina. I mean, whatever the humidity, 100 degrees outside. And on this particular Tuesday in the middle of August, the truck shipment was the rocking chairs. Now, you've seen the rocking chairs out in front of Cracker Barrel, and they're great and wonderful to you, and you can go and sit there and, and, and rock on them and take it easy. Well, 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 my Tuesday was looking in the back of the truck and seeing lots of rocking chairs. And I said, well, who's, who's uh, bringing all those rocking chairs down and putting them in the on the porch, and they said, "Well, that's that's you." I said, oh, "Okay, well, that's fine." So we went at it, uh, and uh, we I went at it and moved all those rocking chairs, and they come covered and uncovered. I mean, I mean, uh, after an hour or so, I'm just pouring sweat. But after the get done with the rocking chairs, I've got to go and work at the register, and so uh, probably should have brought a change of clothes, quite frankly, because I get over to the register, and uh, while I was moving the rocking chairs, someone else in the gift shop had set up a display right beside the register that I was going to work at for the next six, seven hours. And as I'm drying the sweat off of, of, of my face, uh, Bing Crosby at the display starts to sing, I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. He croons that song, and that song ends, and then Bing Crosby begins to sing, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. I have to tell you, in the middle of August, pouring sweat, I don't know of any more song that's out of place than one that's talking about letting it snow, and then he got done with that one, and he began to sing about a winter wonderland, and I'm standing there, you know, six hours hearing these same three songs over and over. Um, it wasn't too long after that that I had found a different job, but... Um, but, but I know people sometimes get worked up when, quote, Christmas season comes too soon, right? I mean, we hear it all the time. I can't believe, I can't believe it's the middle of August, for example, and they put up the Christmas display. People are decorating too early. I think it's helpful if we separate a few things because the truth be told, I I think joy to the world is perfectly fine to sing in the middle of August. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. So let's separate the good news of great joy that's to be for all people, that unto us in the city of David, a Savior has been born. That type of good news and those types of songs don't need to just be a couple of weeks towards the end of of the year. And if we start to really think about it, there is somebody who set the stage, prepared well in advance, and started early, if you will, preparing for Christmas. And that's God himself. On the next six Sundays that I preach, we're going to be here in Isaiah chapter uh, chapter 9, written 
and given to Isaiah over 700 years. I'm talking about starting early, right? Over 700 years before Jesus Christ is born in Bethlehem. And, and it doesn't, his, his preparing doesn't begin in Isaiah chapter 9. The Lord was putting up lights from the get-go. The Lord put up lights in the garden itself, saying, One's coming who's going to crush that old serpent. And if we read the whole counsel of God, we understand that he was preparing for Christmas before the world itself was spoken into creation. For we're told that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world. If you want to use that and say it's all right to go on and put up your Christmas tree, can we? Can, can anybody already got up their Christmas tree and not ashamed to admit it? All right, we got one person who's willing. So go on and put the Christmas, it's fine. Go on and put the lights out because that's God's way of doing things. You got to put the lights out for the simple reason, as we'll learn here in Isaiah chapter 9, because the world is very, very dark. So this morning, let's take the opening verses here in Isaiah 9, we, and we're going to set our sights towards Christmas. I know, mid-November, but that's all right. Uh, I, I'm, never the best, I'm never the best at uh, coming up with sermon titles or series titles. As a matter of fact, I've, I've sort of toyed with the idea of just having a standing sermon series title called Christ Crucified, Resurrected, and Coming Again. That's going to be our sermons from now until the Lord no longer gives me breath to breathe. That We want, to, we want a purpose to know nothing among us except Christ and Him crucified. But I did choose for this series... And taking it straight from the scripture, Isaiah 9, 6, a child is born. So let's read Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. These will be home base for us for the next six weeks or so. It says here in Isaiah 9, beginning in verse 1, But there will be gloom, be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelled in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray together. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that this this passage of Scripture, as the weeks go by at Calvary Baptist Church, you'd increase our affection for this Scripture, you'd increase our understanding of this text, you'd increase our joy at its reality, and you'd increase the clarity of our understanding of who this Scripture speaks.
we are mindful that we need a Prince of Peace. We need a wonderful counselor. We have our feel of counselors that are not wonderful. We need a mighty God, an everlasting Father, one in whom we can trust and rely upon. Father, we pray that you'd use Isaiah 9 this morning, that, that we'd set our hearts and sights, not so much on what we might call the Christmas season. You'd set our hearts and minds on Christ. We thank you that there's been born for us a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Teach us, counsel us. We confess there is no peace apart from your counsel and obedience to it. Give us grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to take primarily Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2 as sort of our theme text this morning. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Now, I think we all understand the difference between light and darkness, right? As a matter of fact, the, the light is most visible when the darkness itself is most significant, right? We can agree on that. The darker the room, once the light goes off, or you light a candle, or you turn the flashlight on, and so we'll see this here in Isaiah chapter 9. Psalm 1830, if you're taking notes, you might want to jot this verse down. Psalm 1830, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He's a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Now, Isaiah is prophesying at a time when God's people were not taking refuge in him. Again, Isaiah prophesies 700 years plus before Christ is born in, in Bethlehem. And the first thing that we're going to see, if you've got your outline and want to follow along in it, is number one, there's a people who are walking in darkness. Or a people walking in darkness, here in Isaiah we'll see, are described. What does it mean? What does it look like when a people walk in darkness? We're going to to look and sample, not an exhaustive search, but just a sampling of some things that Isaiah says that lets us know uh, what a people are like that walk in darkness. And what we need to know is that the darkness is not on the outside, right? Isaiah is not saying that a people, all the lights went out and they lost power. Now, of course, these are the days before electricity. He's not saying that the sun stopped shining or the moon stopped shining or they couldn't light a fire. He's saying the darkness is not outside. The darkness is in here. Their spiritual sight, if you will, their their moral compass, their their understanding of God's ways and his word, that's what has become dark. And it's not just become a little bit dark. It's not sort of like we can't quite see. This verse says... Those who dwelt in a land of what? Of deep darkness. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shine. In, in that verse, the, the verb walked, that's the Old Testament word used very frequently. It, it's, it's talking about just the way that you live your life. They're saying their life is dark. The decisions they make is dark. Uh, their, their thinking is dark. They, remember back in Genesis, before sin entered the world, it says that, that God would what? Walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And then sin came and everything got really dark really fast. 
and, and not only are they walking in darkness, it says, but deep darkness. So, so let's read a couple of verses here and get a handle on these people walking in darkness. Uh, the first thing that we want to mention about them is that they were consumed. They're consumed by what we'll call materialism. Look in Isaiah chapter 2. We're going to flip around a little bit in these early chapters of Isaiah to get some descriptions. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 7. Question, are they, are they in a land of deep darkness because they don't have stuff? Is it because their economy is not uh, as it should be? Well, let's look at Isaiah chapter 2, verse 7. Their land is filled with silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. Their, their wealth is significant. He used that word filled over and over, right? Filled with silvers, filled with gold, filled with treasures, filled with horses, filled with chariots, uh, plenty of transportation, plenty of means of getting around. Filled with, there's no end to their chariots. Military strong. And, and yet, when their land's filled with all this stuff, the result, verse 8, is actually that their land is filled with idols. Great wealth often doesn't result in great holiness. Great wealth often, unfortunately, results in great idolatry. Now, Adrian Rogers puts it in a way that I think is helpful. If you really want to know how wealthy you are, add up all that you have that money cannot buy and death cannot steal. If you add up everything that you've got, money can't buy it, death can't steal it. That's what you actually have. That's what you actually own. Uh, That's what you really have. God promises over here in Isaiah 9, the Messiah, he's going to come and he's going to offer something that money cannot buy. Did you hear it in Isaiah 9? Uh, Multiple times, joy, J-O-Y. He's going to give them, he's going to give us, he's going to give us joy. Now, can, can can we just say something pretty clear? This is sad irony in the fact that we've turned Christmas time into the most materialistic time of all. Isn't this strange? Isn't this strange that God said 700 years before Jesus comes, I'm going to send you one who's going to rescue you from darkness. And part of the description of the darkness is that you're so materialistic. And the sad, unfortunate irony is we've taken the time of Christ who comes to liberate us from wanting more stuff and we've, we've twisted it into a time where we're asking for more stuff. Isn't that strange? Isn't that a strange irony? That, that now December, Christmas season, is almost synonymous with materialism season. I want to go and get more stuff for myself. Well, before you pursue that, I think it's healthy to have a few warnings from Scripture. Uh, here's a warning about materialism. It never satisfies. It never satisfies. You say, well, okay, well, give me a warning that it never satisfies. How about Isaiah chapter 5, verses 8 and 9? Isaiah 5, 8, 9. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there's no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of your land. The Lord of hosts, excuse me, has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitants. Now, something's going on behind the scenes, and that's that the Assyrian army's on the move, and they're actually going to come, and they're going to conquer this people. 
And when that happens, it doesn't really matter how much stuff you have. When that happens, all that uh, really goes is that you have more that's lost, more houses, more fields that are taken from you. They're consumed by materialism. Materialism is the same as trying to satisfy your thirst with salt water. The more you drink of it, it doesn't satisfy and quench your thirst. It just makes you more thirsty. The more you get, you can, you can finish this sentence, what? The more you want. And then you'll get caught up in that race, friends, to always stay in style, to always have the latest gadget, to always have the latest thing. You get a cell phone, and within 30 days, it's out of, out of date. You've got to go get another one, or you get caught up in what's the latest style. Now, this is going to come as no surprise to you. I've never really been in style. I've had the same haircut since birth, right? <laughs> I've never, and, 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 and I never felt this more clearly than not long ago I went to a, a college campus, right, to preach. They invited me to come and preach, and I showed up on the college campus, and I had one of those aha moments. And I walked in, and I realized... I, I'm not in style in the way that I dress. I, I mean, it was just pretty obvious. I, I might not say this out, I, I probably ought not to say this. When, when I realized what was in style, I didn't really have a desire to be in style either. But we'll just save that for uh, a, another day. But this, I had the crazy thought, y'all. I had this crazy thought and that I'd gotten there to preach. You know, I, I, I'm 36 years old now, and, 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 I, and I don't really know where you're supposed to buy clothes and how you're supposed to dress or so on and, and, and so forth. And, and I started to think, and this is crazy, but this is what I began to think as I'm standing there, and these college kids are coming in, and I'm, I'm talking to them and so on and so forth. I had this thought, I'm going to get on their stage, and they're going to look at me and say, this guy, who is this? Where did he, where did he come from? And doesn't he know that those shoes, I mean, I mean, it's not the mid-90s anymore. <laughs> I mean, I think that's what we all do, you know, when we were college age, whatever that style was at that time, we just ride it. And I think it's fine, by the way. I think it's perfectly fine. Just, well, not for all stuff. No, okay. <laughs> so I'm really sitting there. I've prepared a message. I've got something to say from God's word. And this silly little thought comes into my mind. Maybe I should have gone to the store and gotten some different clothes before I came here. But then that's immediately followed up by the next thought is, well, what store are you supposed to go to? I don't, I don't, I don't, really, I don't really know. They're not going to want to listen to what I have to say. I think, I think, truthfully, that sold them a little short. And then much more importantly, not an audible voice, but I've read enough Bible to hear the Lord speak. It's almost like this. Would, would, you, would you not worry so much about being hip, but about being holy? You know, I, I just, I won't belabor this point. But I think it's worth giving us a warning in the American church. I think we spend far too much time concerned with being hip and, and not enough time pursuing holiness. I say that particularly to my generation. Isaiah, he's giving a warning over here. By by the way, there's no indication here that Isaiah himself in his own generation was was known for his hipness or his coolness or staying in style. When Paul gives Timothy the requirements of being a messenger of the gospel, there are no wardrobe requirements. In fact, fact, the Bible seems to suggest (laughs) that, that they might strip you of everything. So don't worry about what you dress with. He doesn't tell Timothy to be cool. He tells him to walk with Jesus. 
But that's what materialism does, doesn't it? The problem with materialism is it takes our eyes over what's really important and, and sets it on things that are so shallow. But one, they're walking in great darkness because they're consumed by materialism. They're filled with silver and gold, filled with treasures, filled with horses, but they're also filled with idolatry. Another marker that we'll see here is they had a leadership vacuum. Go over here in Isaiah chapter 3. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 6. For a man will take hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our leader. And this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. And that day he will speak out, saying, I will not be a healer. In my house there is neither bread nor a cloak. You shall not make me leader of the people. What's this saying? Well, we go on to keep reading. Verse 8, for Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. For the look on their faces bears witness against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. What's he saying? There's a leadership vacuum. Nobody's capable of leading. Those that tried to lead esteem what is wicked and ungodly. They're, they're the blind leading the blind. They're all walking around in darkness and nobody's got a light. That's what Isaiah is saying. All they know to do is say, hey, you got a nice cloak. Why don't you be our leader? Right? It's, it's a hint of the materialism again, right? You look like you could be a good leader because you got a nice cloak. But there's nobody capable of actually leading. There's a leadership vacuum. And the result of it is, friends, he says, their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. In, in the original Hebrew language, that verb defying is a strong verb. It's not that you kind of drifted from his presence. You're defying his presence. So we don't want any light here. In verse 8, that reveals the root of the problem. They believe they could defy God and thrive. Now, it is, uh, I've already been confused about the date. It's Sunday, November the 15th. Is that right? On Sunday, November the 15th, I want to say clearly, you cannot defy the presence of God and thrive. Now, that's the hope of our culture. Just do away with these things. It's the hope of their culture. I mean, uh, truthfully, the days we're living in aren't anything new. They're the days we've been living in since Adam and Eve said we want to be our own gods. We, we, want, to, we want to create the light ourselves. We want to be our own light. Now, uh, uh, that didn't turn out well. You'd think they'd return to the Lord, but they don't. The next marker of uh, people walking in great darkness is they were devoted to strange teachings. Look over in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 6. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, Isaiah 2, 6. You have rejected your people, the house of Jacob. God's rejected them. Why? Because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. And they strike hands with the children of foreigners. And then we get to those verses we already read. Their land's filled with silver and gold, right? The, uh, <clears throat> and then Isaiah chapter 8, verses 19 and 20. We'll move through these quickly, but not because they're not important. They're very important. 8, verse 19. When they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the li li living? To their teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. What's he saying? 
They're, they're, they're in great darkness, and where are they going for insight? To greater darkness. And this is what happens. This is what happens. They're materialistic. Uh, they've got a leadership vacuum. And, and so because things begin to unravel, they, they devote themselves to strange teachings. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will reap. And they begin to reap what they're sowing. Darkness just leads to more darkness. Another marker, Isaiah 3.16. They have a stronghold of sensuality. Chapter 3, verse 16. The Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. The women desired to be desired. They had strongholds of sensuality. And it's another idol, friends, that does not satisfy, makes promises, cannot keep. In truth, it leads only to deeper and deeper depravity. Isaiah mentions these tinkling ankle bracelets. The truth of the matter is that they soon give way to tinkling chains. Probably the clearest description we get is the next one. They called evil good. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 18 through 23 Woe, W-O-E. It's the strongest word God can use, by the way. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who say, let him be quick and let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. Now, now on first reading, doesn't that sound positive? That sounds good, right? It sounds, okay, we're finally getting to where we need to get. They say, let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. But notice what else he says. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Now, this is, need uh, need to see this very clearly. They weren't a people who said, we don't want anything to do with the counsel of God. No, no, they said, bring it near. But I want you to see what they're doing. Is they're saying, let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near. But then it seems they're taking what he's said in his word and they're turning it upside down. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Now, <laughs> there might have been a time in our lives when we would have said, well, how does that work? But unless your head is buried in the sand, you know how this works. You've heard people open up a Bible and quote some scripture, some what I'll call dot, dot, dot scripture. Little phrase over here and a little phrase over there. And they twist it to make it sound like it supports their own evil practices. And that's what was happening in these days. God, the strongest word in the Hebrew language he can use is woe. And how many times does he use it in those few verses? Over and over and over again. They began to call evil good. Their moral judgments were upside down. What God calls right, they called wrong. And then horror of horrors, they quoted God on the subject and said, he stands with us. Woe to them captivity and desolation are coming for this people that's a description of a people truly walking in great darkness now you've made the conclusion that i've made have you not they sound just like us every description we give of them can be said of our day 
So this is an important question. How does God respond? But we get over here to Isaiah 9. We get over here to Isaiah 9. And God just say, all right, have it your way. Do you see in Isaiah chapter 9 the first word of Isaiah 9? Our, our hope hinges on this word. That here's how you are. Number two, here's how God is. Let's, let's look. Number two, God promises to send. Now, I have to tell you, it'd be appropriate if he said God promises to send destruction. God promises to send annihilation. God promises to send uh, wrath. We get over to Isaiah 9, and God promises to send. You know, you know what the people who walk in darkness most need? That's what God promises to send. He said, I'm going to send you light. God intervenes, but, but there will be no gloom. I just jotted down a few times in the Bible where we get this phrase, but God. Here, here, just listen to him. Genesis 50, 20. You meant evil against me. This is Joseph talking. You meant evil against me. He says to his brothers, but God meant it for good in order to save many people. Psalm uh, Psalm 49, verses 14 and 15. Their beauty shall be consumed in the grave, but God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. Psalm 73, 26. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Romans 5, 7 and 8. For scarcely will a person die for a righteous person, though for a good person one may dare even to die. But God, but God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10. I has not seen nor ear heard the things which God has prepared for those who love him, but God has revealed to them, revealed them rather to us through his spirit. You are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who's still at work among the sons of disobedience, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, God would be perfectly just if that's how the Bible concluded. It's not, though. Here's the next phrase. You know what the next phrase is, don't you? But God, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. When we were in darkness... He sends light. I'll give you quick <laughs> some characteristics of this. Darkness is replaced by light. Luke one seventy nine to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. Matthew 4.16, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in a land of shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. John 1.5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said, let light shine out from darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Anytime that light shines in darkness, which reigns supreme? The light always does, doesn't it? And God put that, he created all things. It's, it's a visual reminder to us. And then when the Messiah comes, he gives a few uh, a few characteristics. He says here, uh, verse 3, you have multiplied the nation. A small faithful remnant uh, on your outline grows larger. He's sending his grace and he's going to rescue not a handful of people, but a heaven full of people. Amen? And they're going to come from every language, every tribe, every tongue, and they'll confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God desires a big family. He promises Abraham will be the father of a vast multitude, and then when we get to Revelation 7, he says, Here's, I di- here, I did it. Right? I did it. Every language, every tribe, every tongue. And then not only does a small 
faithful remnant grow larger, we also see that the people have deep and abiding joy. You've multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. This is simple. This is real simple. You know you're growing in Christ if your joy is increasing. Simple. So simple, but it's true. I mean, if your joy is absent, now, friend, I don't know what to tell you other than that, that, that you're not walking with Christ. There's something that needs to be repented of, a sinful stronghold or an unbiblical attitude, an unbiblical thought process. Our, our joy is not related to circumstances, things going better and better. I'll tell you what, the day that the Apostle Paul come, came to faith in Christ, his life just got harder and harder and harder circumstantially, but his joy got greater and greater and greater. Amen? All right. Next marker, their burdens, their burdens are lifted. Their burdens are lifted. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Midian's a reference to Gideon, by the way. That's, that's the great triumph that Gideon had had. And for the sake of time, I'm going to sake, sake of time, I just want you to hear me say a few things uh, related to this burden being lifted because this is a consistent theme through the scripture. I'll give you an example. When I was 13 or 14 years old, we, we, uh, me and my older two brothers had a little season where we uh, started lifting weights. I was the youngest of three, which is another way of saying I was the weakest of three, which isn't, which isn't an easy role to have in life, quite truthfully. And so my brothers had got the bench press up, and they were lifting, and they were going at it, and uh, in a moment of pride, in a moment of arrogance, I said, uh, I was about to get, I was going to do the next set, and they started taking the weight off. They were going to recalibrate the weight. I said, no, 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 you just leave it on there. I can lift it, and uh, they said, no, you can't. I said, yes, I can, so I sat down and got that bench. I won't even tell you how much weight it is. It, it, will, it was more than the bar. I'll at least say that, so I lifted the bar up, brought it down, and started lifting it back up. And, and, um, and, and my brothers began to have a conversation with me at that moment. You said you could lift it. I am. You said you could do it. Now, uh, it, uh, they could have walked out, I guess, and I'd really be in trouble. But uh, when I'd had enough and learned my lesson, uh, they grabbed hold of the weight and lifted it back up. Listen to what Cain says after he murders Abel and God comes to him. God curses him. Here's what Cain says. My punishment is too great to bear. He's saying my punishment's too great to live. It's the only insightful, wise, truthful statement that Cain's on record of saying. He's right. It was too great for him to bear. All through the rest of the Old Testament, the connotation of sin is that it's a burden placed on on our shoulders. We can't bear it. That's why when they begin to implement the sacrificial system, they take the lambs and the lambs, before the priest would sacrifice, he'd lift it up. It's two things at once. Here's who's bearing the burden, and we understand there's a burden to be lifted. In Isaiah, later on in chapter 53, talking about Christ the Messiah, it says of him, he shall be high and lifted up, and he will carry our sorrows. What's he talking about? It's a prophetic utterance that Christ is going to come to the cross. They're going to nail him to the cross, and he's going to be lifted up. And there's a double meaning, as many uh, 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 poems and uh, 
poetic writing has. He's lifted up, and as he's lifted up, the prophecy is he's going to lift it up. You understand what I'm saying? It is too much for Cain to bear. But anybody who'd come to faith in Christ, what you're doing is you're conf- you have to confess, that's too much for me to bear. I cannot do this. And this is what Isaiah is saying. You're walking in darkness. Yoke of your burden. Isn't that a burdensome yoke this morning? And we're talking specifically about sin. Staff for his shoulder. This is all a language that has to do with a defeated foe. That you're now, uh, you're, you're now oppressed by a, an enemy that's conquered you. And in those days, whether it was Assyria, or a little bit later on Babylon, or a little bit later on Rome, when they come in, now you're going to have to do what they say. And you're going to bear the yoke of their burden. But now... Look at verse 5. Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tomorrow, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel. He's coming to lift it up. Some of us are still carrying around the burden of sin. Jesus on the cross, you know what he's saying? Put that burden on me. The government, the burden, we'll talk about this more in the weeks to come, it's going to be on my shoulders. I'll carry it. I'll lift it. Now, last question. Number three. How will God accomplish this? How's God going to accomplish this? It says here in verse six. Is he going to send a military general? Is he going to send an economic expert, savvy politician? like a lot of verses, I sort of wish we didn't already know it so that we could feel the, the surprise. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Again, in the original reading, I mean, he's, he's just come off all these references to military and battle. And, and so it's unexpected. For unto us a baby's coming he's gonna he's gonna send a baby that's what he says and then the last reference here on your outline is the child has certain names we've all been there haven't we baby's coming what's the next question what are you going to name the baby what are you going to name him right sometimes you get a family name or sometimes you just like a name sometimes you get a baby book out and sometimes you say well i don't what you hear more and more these days is I want my child to have a name that nobody else has, you know. Now we're all on the search for the most unique name, right? Um, interesting thing here is, is, is God doesn't say settle for just one name, right? You can give him a lot of names. Here are the names. Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. You know why he's going to send them a counselor? <laughs> because they're walking in deep darkness. You know, you know why he's going to send a mighty God? Because they have no leadership. You, you know why he's going to send an everlasting father, a prince of peace? Because that's exactly what they need. Look at one more scripture before we close. That's Matthew chapter 4, New Testament. First book in the New Testament. Matthew 4, verses 12 through 17. Matthew 4, verse 12. 
Now when he heard that John had been arrested, this is Jesus, he withdrew into Galilee. Some of these places he goes might sound familiar. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. 700 years have gone by. Why did he do that? Verse 14. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And Jesus walks over, metaphorically speaking, flips the light switch on. He says, I'm here. I am the light. He probably doesn't really even need a light switch, truthfully. He is the light. This is important, friends. The next verse is crucial. What does he say? From that time, when the light's gone out, when the lights come on, rather, Jesus began to preach, saying, help me, church, what does he say? Repent. Repent. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. What's the word repent mean? Simplest definition for repent means you just turn around. Going in that direction, greater and greater and greater darkness. Repent, turn around. Oh, there's the light. Now I'm going to walk where the light is. Materialism, sensuality, leadership vacuum. Repent, turn around. Light, go in that direction. And as you go more towards the light, what it is, 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 is a Savior who's crucified on your behalf. We need a Savior. A, a people who call evil good actually need one who's truly good to take all the evil upon himself. And that's what Jesus does. Repentance is a change of mind that brings about a change of behavior. Repentance comes out of the darkness. Repentance is coming out of the darkness and stepping into the light. Repentance is the result of hearing from a wonderful counselor. Repentance is the only thing we can do when we see him as mighty God. Repentance is the means by which we have an everlasting father. And repentance is the pathway of glad submission to the prince of peace. We've all been a people walking in great darkness. Concluding question is, have you seen the light? We're going to have a time of invitation. Um, and, and invitation is simply this. We respond to what God has said in his word. Any of those warning signs, materialism, sensuality, calling evil good, do you see those in your own life? It's not sufficient to say, yeah, I see them, and not repent of them. We'll, we'll talk about this more in the weeks to come, but you can't see the light and then not walk in the light. In other words, your, your life has to match up the sight you claim to have. Amen? And maybe you've never, you've never repented. You've never come to faith in Christ. The invitation is wide open. I'll stand right here if you've got a burden. He's a burden lifter. Had a burden this morning? In some ways, the invitation is a weekly reminder that though we've got burdens, we've got a mighty burden lifter. Lift it up to lift up. Let's, let's stand and we'll pray together. I hope that in some small manner that this morning you've been encouraged to celebrate the Christmas season, that it doesn't feel too early in the sense of celebrating Christ and what he's done.
We'll pray together, and then the invitation will be wide open this morning. Respond as the Lord might lead you to do. Father, the, the way your word describes a people walking in deep darkness, we see evidence of it in our own day. So we confess to you that we need light. We need light that comes from you, from Christ Jesus. And we thank you that from the beginning when we rebelled and entered into darkness, from the get-go, you came after us. You brought the light with you. You sought us out. You are the light of the world. Thank you for Jesus. And pray that our invitation time now is pleasing, that spirit-led, Christ-centered. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.